Okay, good morning. Glad you're here today. I'm glad I'm here today too. My name's Randy, and uh, most of you probably know me. Back in 2012, we uh, initiated the first of three sermon series based on three books written by James Brian Smith. And uh, the first series that we did back in 2012 was called The Good and Beautiful God Revealed to Us Through Jesus. And it was a series about knowing God, not knowing about God, not necessarily getting more information about God, but about coming into relationship with him. And I've, I've mentioned over the last couple of times I taught back in January that this has been a, an action item, so to speak, that I've been working on. What, what, what could it be like to actually experience God with us during our day? You know, the word Emmanuel that we use at Christmas is the word God with us. And so it is our hope that we could continue to grow in that. I've been a Christian since I was in ninth grade and uh, came into an awareness of the presence of God back in my uh, mid-twenties through the vineyard. And yet over the years, this awakening, this what is it really like to have a personal, intimate relationship with God. We talk about that all the time. Christians talk about the distinction between other religions, other expressions of uh, world religions than ours, is that it has to do with the relationship with God. And yet, that's a little tough with an invisible God. At least that's what I'm still finding. And there's more required to be able to experience that. The second series was titled The Good and beautiful life, putting on the character of Jesus. And and that was a series about living the very life of Jesus, living out the kind of life he would live if he were you or I. And uh, I know that I've still got some work on that one. These series uh, were opportunities to begin to engage with our thinking processes, not so much more information as what does it really mean for this to impact and affect how I live, how I think, how I relate to others. The third one that we're beginning this week, the third and final series was called or is called the good and beautiful community. It's about being the community of Jesus. And it's a series about sharing the life of Jesus with others. Having, having come into a relationship with God, coming into an understanding about who he is as a God of love. We, we want to be like that. We want that in our lives. And so we take action to, to work towards becoming the kind of person who would, who would in fact live like Jesus. Loving him, loving others. And not only as an individual, but as Kevin so beautifully highlighted again to us, this is, this is about being a community. We need each other. 
We're not intended to do this Christian thing alone. And so this series is going to have somewhat of a, a twofold aspect. How do, we, how do we be the community of Jesus here in an inward way with one another in our community groups and our spiritual friends groups? But then how do we be the community of Jesus as we overflow from that experience of community here and out into the world and the lives of others who don't yet experience this and don't understand or know about this great and beautiful God. On the first week of the first series in 2012, I, I gave an introduction. I talked about change and how we change. And, and I'm going to highlight that again because um, I believe that we, we need to wrestle with this relative to lots of areas in our lives, including knowing God, including becoming the right the kind of person that would love and care for, including how to relate to one another. And I I said uh, when we initiated this last time, there's a belief that people change by mustering their willpower and set about trying to change some behavior or habit. But the reality is, as we know from all of the New Year's resolutions, that that most often fails. I I haven't been able to adequately muster the willpower to do a whole lot of change in my life. Maybe you have. I don't know. But according to many psychologists, James Smith, the author of the book, um, others, Dallas Willard, they suggest that the will actually doesn't have any power. There is no such thing as willpower. Rather, the will is simply the human capacity to choose. The will says, I'm going to do this. The will says, I'm, I'm going to do this. And how it's influenced in those decisions has to do with these influencers throughout our, as a part of our lives, that influence the will and direct it. There's four primary influencers that we talk about. The first, of course, being the mind, what we think, the emotions, the body, our social context. And if we want to change, as I'm working on in a number of areas of my life, and as you probably want in areas of your life, we don't change simply by saying, okay, I'm going to change today. I'm going to stop thinking that way. I'm going to choose to do a different thing. We can say that all we want, but we don't change by having the willpower. We need to have all of these influencers, how we feel, our emotions, what we think, our narratives, the the patterns of our responses and actions, our practices, the social involvements and the settings of our lives, our social context. We, We need to modify and change those influences. We need to examine and to understand what's going on. And then from there we can begin to address, okay, I can understand how that's impacting. And the good news about change is that we have control over these influencers. Maybe not real easily always, but we can. And if we identify and address those things, which we can, then change will come as an outcome of dealing with those aspects. Let me give you an example from my own life. 
Last time I taught on January 12th, I I shared about a resource that numerous of us in our church are using that engages uh, us with uh, the work of our spiritual lives unto the outcome of spiritual change, uh, transformation, as we might call it. And I shared that in one of the recent lessons uh, that I was working through, I was asked to identify what I thought were two or three areas that I believed God was working on in my life. I mentioned one of them even this morning already. We called, the author calls these front burner items. And one of those that I identified last time, which happened at the time to be my third front burner item, was trusting God as my source and the fear of losing my job. Trusting God is my source and the fear of losing my job. I wanted to be able to trust God. I did trust God, sort of, kind of, mostly, maybe, right? I trusted him as my source. I, Claire and I have, have an incredible history. We've been married for 36, seven years. I always lose track. But anyway, um, you know, it just it keeps, it keeps changing every year. That's the real problem with it. I like my age. Gee, am I 56 or 7? It kind of depends on Claire. Let's see, Claire is 57 and I'm 56. She's older than I am right now. <laughs> Till May. Then we'll be the same age. Anyway, it's kind of one of those things. I don't know. But um, I, 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 I'm a little bit like the man in the scriptures who, who so desperately wanted to see Jesus heal his son. Lord, I, I believe. Well, Mostly, can you help me where I don't believe? That, that's a legitimate prayer. The little boy got healed with that kind of faith from the father. The father had quite a bit of faith, though. Think about it. Just think about the actions of that father. The actions of faith that he took. Did he just hear about Jesus? Did a friend tell him about Jesus? Had he been walking through town one day and saw something happening? It just wasn't out of the blue that this man brought his son to Jesus, right? There there was an initiation, a stirring of something in his heart. Oh my God, my son might be able to get well. And it, it impelled that man to take action. Faith was stirred in his heart. He had faith. Maybe not all the faith that was needed... And he realized that and he said to Jesus, Jesus, I've, I've got this much. Will that count? Can that help? So I, I had some faith about God trusting him as our source. Claire and I have seen him year after year after year after year after year provide for us, care for us. We've... We've not had any significant tragedy, as many of you have. There's been some hard times. I've lost my job a few times, but God has always been faithful. Never lost a house. We've never gone without a meal. And in the, in the process of, of, of considering this front burner item of trusting God as my source... I I read and I I reflected and I journaled and I prayed about this issue in my life. And I I was brought to look at and consider my feelings. What was really happening inside of me relative to to this issue of trusting God? And 
And at one point in that process, there was a significant fear that got uncovered that I hadn't really seen before, I wasn't really all that aware of. And I found that under that fear were, were thoughts and a, and a belief that God can't be trusted to take care of me and my loved ones. And, and that as a result, I was left responsible to take care of them and myself. And below that, there were responses, there were actions, there were ways I was living, things I was doing, hoping to provide security for my loved ones. I I wanted to protect them from harm. And you can imagine that that kind of an understanding or a revelation was pretty startling to me. I was not aware of this significant buried deeply thing that was really quite in contrast to everything I've ever taught as a pastor about the good and loving God who we say is committed to taking care of us and our loved ones. So, what's happened since then, you might ask, and as one good friend likes to ask me, how's it going? And the quick summary version is this. In that moment of, of, of revelation, I was given an opportunity and I made a powerful choice to address my thinking, which addressed my emotions, which brought changes to my actions, and has modified how I'm relating to Clara and Priscilla. Through that whole process of examination, reflection, journaling, prayer, talking about it with others, over about an eight-week period of time, I was able to take that fairly ugly, dark thought, that dark belief, and I held it up to the light of God's Word, And when I did, I found those thoughts and feelings to be phantoms and shadows. They were lies that I had accepted and that I was living my life by. The light and truth of God's word says, for I am convinced. And I am convinced. That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers, whether no, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And it also says, just verses before, God works together all things for good. All things. God works together all things for good. Kind of like stew. A pot of good uh, spaghetti sauce. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And he works good. And that includes those hard things. Those trials. Those difficulties. They're in the pot. God works 
all things for good for those who love him and are consecrated according to his calling. And when I was confronted with these two opposing mindsets, I was given a choice. Was I going to continue to live from a place of fear and torment based on lies and false beliefs and narratives? Or was I going to believe God's word and live as if it was so? As if it was true? Let me say it another way. In what was I going to put my trust, my faith? Was I going to have faith in the fear that God was untrustworthy and that as a result I'm going to need to take care of myself and my loved ones? Or was I going to have faith in what God has said and what I have experienced? The the testimony of my life is God has always provided. I have evidence. I have evidence that what God said in His Word is true, that nothing can separate us from His love and that nothing can happen to me or my loved ones, that He is not able to work together for good. Both of those require faith. What are you putting your faith in? Fear? Insecurities? Or in what God has said? You know, we talk a lot about the role of faith in the Christian life. Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, is confident assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is confident assurance of what is hoped for. Faith is not hope. It's more than hope. It's a confident assurance of something hoped for. Hope is a dream of something in the future that's desired, that that may be possible. But but it's something that I'm looking forward to in the future. Right? Hope. I I hope tomorrow will be a good day. I hope the meal I get at Grady's today is going to be a good one. I hope you'll come and sit and talk with me at lunch today and we can talk about this together. I I hope Clara gets well this week. She's been sick. We've been praying for her, but uh, she had that awful flu and other things are going on. So do please join us in prayer for that. She's doing better, but she is not well. So we have hope about something to happen in the future. But that's... Not faith. Faith lives as if the dreams of the future are already a reality. They are already so. If we have confident assurance, we're convinced of something. So much so that we live and act as if it were true. And we operate in faith all the time. Stools are long ways away. But I have tremendous faith that I can sit on this step and it's not going to collapse. I mean, my faith in that was huge. Your faith in sitting down in those chairs today was pretty profound. You you had confident assurance. You you had evidence. You, You saw somebody else sitting in one. 
Did any of you think today, gosh, I sure hope this chair holds me up today. No, we operate in faith all the time. Faith is not this. I hope this chair holds me today because last week, I don't know, it was a little shaky. I've, I've told this story dozens and dozens of those plastic chairs we have. One of our staff members, a fairly large, robust man, sat down in one one day and it did not hold him. And it went flat. And he went flat. And I was preaching. And I went... He goes, I'm okay. Raises his hand from the floor. I'm all right. I think we bought the other chairs, the purple ones, uh, not long after that. Faith is confident assurance. But faith is the evidence of things not seen. I use that word. We have uh, uh, one lawyer here. And evidence is proof of the real thing. It's proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, in the, in the courts, it's evidence is just evidence. We, the, the jury still gets to figure out if they believe that that was true evidence. The word evidence means proof of the real thing. It substantiates the existence of something not seen. Faith is proof of something not yet seen, but is not the thing itself. Faith as evidence is temporary. Once you attain the thing, you don't need faith anymore. Once the reality has come, you don't need the evidence anymore. You know. Once you sit down in that chair, you don't need evidence that it's not collapsed on you before because you know. You're sitting in it. It doesn't require any faith. You can back up that concept. And I used it earlier when I was describing what Claire and I have experienced over the last 37 years of marriage. We have evidence. We have proof that God has always taken care of us. And that evidence is pretty strong evidence that He's going to continue to do that. Does that make sense? So while we're waiting for the reality to come, we don't haven't yet fully attained it, but while we're waiting for it to be presented, we already have the proof through our faith. It's not yet known. It's not yet appearing to our natural senses. It can't yet touch it. It can't yet feel it. That meal tomorrow that that God's going to provide, that probably I'll make because I've been making, well, hardly meals. But anyway, I've been getting the things together that Claire and I eat. Not sure I would call them meals, but anyway. Um, but I don't. I, I can't see that meal yet. I, I don't have. I, 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 I don't have it. I don't know the taste of it. When I eat it tomorrow, then I'll know. I'll have it. But right now, I have evidence that she and I are going to eat again tomorrow. Evidence because I, I made it five days. She hasn't died, and I haven't died yet of starvation. So. Faith is not yet here. We, we can't see it in our, in our human senses, but it's, we're already convinced through faith. If we only hope something is true, I sure hope 
that I get a meal tomorrow. I sure hope I get a job again someday. I sure hope that our marriage makes it. That's not faith. Faith is confident assurance with evidence. And friends, we have a whole lot of confident assurance and evidence about God. We really do. All kinds of areas and ways. You know, some people say, when I see it, or, or when I touch it, then I'll believe it. That's what Thomas said to the other disciples about Jesus. Well, I don't... I don't really, I, until I touch him and, and see those and put my hand in his side, it ain't true. Thomas did not have faith. And that was okay. That was all right. Jesus came the next week or the next time. Jesus presented himself alive to Thomas, allowed him to put his fingers in the nail holes and the spear holes. And he exclaimed, my God, my God. And Jesus had a reply to him. You might look up that reply. It wasn't really a put down. But it was a statement that Thomas had not had faith. And he actually makes a statement about us. Jesus does. How great the blessing will be for those who haven't yet touched and seen, but through faith, believe. Seeing is not believing. Seeing and touching is knowing. If you're waiting to know about something before you believe, you're going to wait forever. You'll never receive anything by faith. You can only apply faith when you have and only have confident assurance and evidence. Faith in the future tense, meaning something that's yet in the future, is only hope. It's not faith. Faith obtained is knowledge. Genuine faith is something in the now, something right now that I have confident assurance and evidence of something that God has said, and I am now going to live as if it's so. Faith is action. It's action. It's expressions of that confidence to where I sit down in the chair. To where I get up in the morning and I open the refrigerator and there's food and I make the meal. And if the refrigerator gets a little bit low, I go out to the market and I buy a few things that I shouldn't buy. Like ice cream and chocolate syrup. Because, you know, when you don't have a job, you've got to have something. Faith is an attitude where we cling to, adhere to, and live by the Word of God. Something that God has said. And that we so believe, that we so have confident assurance and evidence of the truth of it, even though it's still unseen, that we act and live as if it is true. 
my senses and my reason may be telling me something else. They may be telling me what I know, that I don't have a job and there's no more money coming in, or at least not enough. But faith is telling me about something other than that. Faith is telling me through assurance and evidence, I don't have to worry about that. I may have to take some action. Action's not opposed to faith. In fact, faith without action isn't really faith, James told us. Even though Martin Luther didn't like it. You see, when, we, when I was confronted with these two opposing mindsets, I was given a choice. Was I going to have faith in the fear that God was untrustworthy and that as a result I'm going to need to take care of myself and my loved ones? Or was I going to have faith in what God has said in His Word? That nothing can separate us from His love and that nothing can happen to me or my loved ones. That He is able, that He is able and will work together all things for good. What am I going to put my trust in? What am I going to have faith for? How am I going to live my life? Door number one or door number two? Box number one, box number two. If you're under 35, you don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Back in the middle of January, I made a powerful choice to change my thinking and to move my faith from fear to faith in God and His commitment to work together all things for good that has transformed my life. One week later, actually five days, I lost my job. You know that top front burner thing, trusting God and fear of losing my job that I was working on, that God was working on? I lost my job. How many of you have talked to me since then and heard me talk about how I'm doing? How am I doing? Why? You're right. That is a part of it. God prepared me. Absolutely. But I am not living by faith. I am not taking action according to the fear that God is not going to supply. I'm all done with that one. I had a very similar phenomenon, and I've shared that story. I I didn't realize the parallel here until uh, I was working on this. Um, I grew up, Christian home, uh, got saved in ninth grade, got introduced to pornography and stuff that went along with that, which was only magazines back then. Didn't know internet. Poor kids today. Goodness gracious. I had to go, you know, kind of steal it or something, you know. Anyway, I grew up wanting to please God, wanting to do the right thing, but failing time after time after time. And and through that shame and guilt, I, I grew up a belief about God. Nobody taught it to me. They didn't have to. The enemy did. It was a phantom. It's one of those lies. It's a mindset. It was an understanding. I didn't know it was there. Until I was about 29, Claire and I are listening to a new CD by Twyla Paris and a song called Runner. 
And in that song, she talks about living our life and at the end of that life, running into the arms of God. And in that moment, I was given revelation that I was living according to a mindset, a way of thinking, that God was like a giant policeman. Just waiting for me to do something wrong so he could spank me. That's not in the Bible. No preacher preached that to me. The enemy preached that to me. And I took it in, hook, line, and sinker, sometime along my teen years. But in that moment, in that moment, God gave me a picture, a vision. And in that vision, I was running on a track in a coliseum that was filled with people. And there were other runners, people in the center. And off to my right, little ways up in the stand, was God the Father. And He was on His feet. And He was applauding and He was cheering for me. And in that moment, that false narrative, that false belief about God being a giant policeman was shattered. It was smoke. It was a phantom that He said, boo! And it was gone. And I have never, I have never, I have never ever since that moment not believe that God is for me, that He loves me, that He's cheering for me. Not once. And my anticipation is that I am never going to question God as my source again either. Now, I got a whole lot more preparation and time with God and talking with people about this topic of trusting God as my source than I did about that one. Change will primarily come over a process of time. As we consider our feelings, our narratives, our thoughts, our practices, how they're working, asking God to bring us revelation, friends that are speaking into our lives, loved ones whom we're hurting that maybe might want to suggest, you know, that isn't real helpful. And we begin to recognize those things and we begin to take action about them. And over time we change. But by His mercy and grace, on occasion, that revelation can come in such a profound way that it is in a moment He blows away that false narrative. That false belief. Blows it up. In the previous series, The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, and in this new one, The Good and Beautiful Community, we're providing alternatives to what we think and believe that are based out of fear and lies and misunderstandings and misconceptions about God, about the life He has for us, the community He's called us to. Because identifying our narratives and aligning them with the truths of God's Word will change our thinking. It will calm our feelings. It will alter our practices. 
and within a supportive social context will influence our will and our lives will be transformed. The good and beautiful community. In this upcoming series, we're going to look at eight characteristics of the church. The first is the church as a peculiar community. I'm going to be talking about that this morning. Not very long, fairly brief. After that, Clara is going to talk about the church as a hopeful community. Then the church is a serving community. The church is a Christ-centered community. The church is a reconciling community. The church is an encouraging community. The church is a generous community. And the church is a worshiping community. In each of these topics, we're going to look at the significance of that characteristic as it's expressed inward within our community, but also as it is expressed outward and into our local community. As we delve into this topic, I'd, I'd like you to be just very clearly keep in mind that while the church can be thought of as an institution or an organization, the church over there, the Vineyard Church of San Antonio, the church, that at its core, the church is people. People who form a community of people. If it's a local church, then it's a local expression of community. And if a local church is not expressing these characteristics that we're going to be discussing, the problem at its heart is is not so much with the institution or that organization as it is with its people. And if its people are not expressing those characteristics... Our responsibility as one of those within the community is not to look around and try and figure out who's falling short, who's not matching up. Our responsibility as one of the people of this community is to look inside ourselves, to try and identify and assess how am I falling short of the goal. God wants us to be a hopeful community. But before we can really become a hopeful community, we need to become hopeful people. Extending hope to those in our community groups, in our spiritual groups, our friends, and out to our community. God wants this church to be a serving community. But before this church can be a serving community, we need to become serving people. Serving one another, family, and those outside our community. You know, the Bible talks a lot about not being judgmental. Apostle Paul puts it this way at one point. Watch out. For when you pass judgment on someone else, you're condemning yourself. 
Because you who pass judgment don't, don't do the very thing you're expecting of them. So as we go through this series and we talk about the community, we're talking about you and you and me. How are we doing at being and expressing these characteristics? You know, when people outside the church think about the church, very often the idea of strange or different or weird comes to mind. You know, not weird in that our ladies have to wear long skirts or can't wear makeup or don't cut their hair, but weird in other ways, which may actually be a pretty good descriptive, even if we don't like it. The Apostle Paul, Peter, speaking of the New Testament church, says this in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Awesome. Great. A peculiar people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, I like chosen people. I like royal. I, I like holy. I'm not sure I like peculiar. Dictionaries define the word peculiar as distinctive, odd, strange, weird. Peculiar essentially means different. Different from the ordinary, not common. Christians are peculiar in that they're different from those who do not yet follow Christ. And why are Christians weird? I mean peculiar? Because our God is peculiar. Our God is weird. The God of the Bible, and particularly the God Jesus reveals, is different than the gods that humans design. When the Greeks and Romans created their pantheon of gods and goddesses, they looked remarkably like humans but kind of humans at their worst. Greek and Roman gods lied, cheated, murdered, fornicated, committed adultery, punished each other out of anger and jealousy. Yes, that's the kind of God I want to be like. Not. The God of the Bible loves human beings so much that He became one of them and offered Himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for all human sin. The God of the Bible is generous and never vengeful. The God of the Bible forgives, not once, not twice, but infinitely. The God of the Bible loves those who deny Him and even those who violently hate Him. The God of the Bible is love. There's nothing like this God in all of religious literature. That's because in all of the other religions, there's no God like our weird God. I mean peculiar. Think about the life and stories of Jesus. God is like a father who gets mistreated by a wayward son and aches for the son to come home. God's like an employer who gives a full day's pay and wage to workers who only worked an hour. I like working for that kind of God. 
Jesus does not condemn the woman caught in adultery. But he saves her from being stoned by the religious leaders, sending her home free. Free. Really free. With the loving words, don't keep living this way. This God is not like a giant policeman waiting to catch us doing something wrong so he can punish us. This God is like a loving father standing and cheering for us as we run our race. So is it so surprising that the people of this peculiar God would also be peculiar? Apostle John clarifies the ultimate oddity of these peculiar people. 1 John chapter 4, scattering of verses. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also really ought to love one another. You know, no one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, that's evidence that God lives in us. And His love is perfected in us. Helios. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. We love because He first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate others, are liars. For those who do not love others whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from Him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Brothers and sisters in the sense of our community, our Christian brothers and sisters, but our brother and sister human beings, our brothers and sisters in our community and around the world. The issue is fairly simple. As God is, so should and so can His people be. If we're not loving, then we've not fully understood His love for us. We love because He first loved us. And when we love, It's evidence that God lives in us. And His love is made whole and complete. His love is made teleos in us. His love is made whole and complete in us. Not partial, not a little bit of His love. All of His love. So this peculiar God transforms us into peculiar people. People who love one another inside and outside the community.
even if they scorn and reject that love. Could the worship team come on up for their closing song? This morning I've talked about our our need for change. And I shared that the way we change is not by saying I want to change or having more willpower to change. But we change when we identify and address the influencers of how we feel, our emotions, what we think, our narratives, the patterns of our responses and actions, our practices, the social involvements and settings in our lives, our social context. I shared my own recent story about how I was struggling with trusting God and that through a process of examination and reflection, journaling, prayer, and talking about it with others, that I was confronted with these two opposing mindsets, one based out of fear and faulty thinking about God, the other based on the truth of God's word and who he really is. And I made a powerful choice to change my thinking and move my faith from fear to faith in God and his commitment to work together all things for good, which has transformed my life. I wonder if, as I have shared this morning, something may have emerged in your own mind about an area of your own life where you may be struggling to trust God. Maybe you're a teenager and you're struggling with thoughts of harming yourself because you think no one really cares. Maybe you're a young single adult and you're struggling to trust God about your relationships. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage, you're struggling to trust God about that. Maybe you're a parent, you're struggling to trust God about your children. Maybe you're an older single adult, you're struggling with to trust God about remaining single. Maybe you're struggling related to work. Maybe you're struggling to believe God that there even is one. I also shared this morning about how we as God's people are to be a peculiar people as he is a peculiar God. And that the primary distinction of his peculiarity is love. And as the people of God, we too are to love. I wonder if perhaps you were reminded of ways that perhaps you've wrestled and struggled with loving others. I want to make sure you understand something very important about the process of change. This is not something you're responsible for to manage on your own. God has provided to us His precious Holy Spirit who lives inside us, teaching, guiding, empowering us for change. And He's also provided to us a community within which we are loved, helped, and supported towards change even while we do the same for others. And finally, God Himself who began this good work in you is absolutely committed And he is going to see it through until you are teleos. Until you are whole and complete. As the worship team plays this last song, I'd I'd like to ask some of our trained members and leaders to, to move over towards the wall to get up. The way things work around here is that while the worship team plays this last song, that those folks are available to you. They're there to interact and talk, to hear your story, 
to pray with you and invite God to come into your life so that you can make a powerful choice. After the song is over, our service will be over and you can pick up your kids and the personal prayer team will continue to be available even after that last song. And as a blessing, I want to read to you a quote from Dallas Willard that was extremely meaningful to me recently. The exclusiveness of the Christian revelation of God lies here. No one can have an adequate view of the heart and purposes of the God of the universe who does not understand that He permitted His Son to die on the cross to reach out to all people, even people who hated Him. That is who God is. But that's not just a right answer to a theological question. It's God looking at you from the cross with compassion and providing for you a never-failing readiness to take your hand, to walk on through life from wherever you may find yourself at the time. Might you this morning and this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day and the next and the next Lay hold of by faith this God who is stretching out His hand to you to help you from where you are to where you want to go and to where He wants you to go. And that every morning when you wake up, He is there. He is with you. He is Emmanuel extending His hand to you as you get out of bed inviting you to journey with Him. You do not need to make this journey alone.